That's kind of soothing music. Welcome to the nose. I don't, I don't ever remember the music being so relaxing, but I also don't remember more than maybe three weeks back in my life, so um, it could have been. Uh, so we have three topics, which I, there's no Irene Papoulis here to generate what we call a Papoulian through line on the nose, where you can sort of tie everything together. But in her absence, I actually do think eventually I will be able to do this if I can remember how. Uh, let me tell you who's here. First, Carolyn Payne is an actress, comedian, dancer, founder, director, and choreographer of Kinetic Dance. Uh, Tracy Wu Fastenberg, a director of development at Covenant Preparatory School, and Bill Usman is director of media literacy and digital culture graduate program at Sacred Heart University. Uh, in reverse order, I'll tell you what our topics are today. We've watched uh, some of us, some of us have finished uh, a series called Seven Seconds uh, on Netflix. Uh, it is a very I keep calling it a gritty urban drama. You know, it's 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 sort of the Richard Price. Um, the genre of a story uh, about crime uh, in an urban environment, in this case, Jersey City, uh, and uh, uh, cover-ups and good cops and bad cops and, and DAs with drinking problems and stuff like that. So anyway, um, uh, we'll get there eventually. Uh, but before that, we will talk about the fact that the Obamas are in now in uh, deep negotiations, apparently, with Netflix um, to become essentially content creators uh, on Netflix, both uh, uh, President uh, Obama and Michelle Obama uh, are uh, they're each going to do their own thing too apparently from what has trickled out here uh, and I'm guessing from what has trickled out here we are meant to have it trickled out to us. I don't think there was some leak the way there is in like seven seconds. Anyway, uh, but we're going to begin with the New York Times so-called overlooked project. This uh, you may know about it al already. It is a decision by the New York Times, a determination uh, to uh, do a set of obituaries, uh, at least uh, for starters, for 15 women who did not get uh, obituaries. They are women who lived in both the 19th and 20th centuries uh, and uh, they include some people who perhaps the New York Times could not have known about if they made uh, even a, a token effort. Uh, and then there are some people that you sort of can't believe <laughs> did not get New York Times obituary, obituaries in the first place, people like Diane Arbus, Sylvia Plath, who were very well known at the time. And in that first category might be somebody like Henrietta Lacks, who is very famous now uh, because cancer cells were taken from her body without permission and they led to a medical revolution. But I think until that book was written about her, I'm not sure how many people knew about her. Ida B. Wells was uh, a pretty well known uh, pioneer uh, in uh, taking on racism in the Deep South, powerful reporting uh, on lynchings, didn't get an open. Anyway, so that's where we're beginning. And um, I guess maybe I, I wish I had a perfectly pointed question to ask, but I probably don't. So Tracy Wu Fasterberg, maybe you and I can get the conversation going here. I mean, in general, it, it's one, it, it's, I guess uh, here's how I'll begin. I struggle these days when things like this happen to where to put my energy into a sense of despair and outrage about the omissions of the past or a sense of, of elation and hope about the corrections of the present. Uh, how are you mixing up that ratio right now? I think it's always important to acknowledge the wrongs of the past. Um, but I think if you dwell on it too much and you don't move forward, then you never get any further. You just keep on sitting there saying, well, you know, we screwed up, we screwed up, we screwed up. Yes, this does not make up for overlooking these women in the past. I think they did a wonderful job of being inclusive on the list. They didn't just include well-known white women that got overlooked, but they included women of color, transgender women, you know, a whole host of folks. And I think they, they were very deliberate about that. Um, and I think that in trying to make 
some sort of reparation, they did a decent job of it. And I think it, it sounds like they want to continue doing this also. So if they keep on handling it with the same care and also rectifying the situation as, as more folks pass um, and not just focusing on what they've traditionally focused on, then that's progress. Um, right. I think that's acknowledging and trying to make it right as best you can. Well, I mean, it appears, and Bill, you've been paying special attention to that. I mean, there have been several different explanatory articles in the New York Times <laughs> <laughs> about what's happening here and why it's happening. Uh, one of them uh, came from uh, two uh, women journalists slash obit writers uh, who've been uh, drivers of the project. But yet another one came out from William McDonald, who's the head of the whole obit enterprise there. But the women have said that even in the last two years, one in five New York Times obits is a is a woman, which um, once again we'd like to celebrate the the kind of vision that led to this series. But it seems like they have a contemporary problem here too. <laughs> but they've acknowledged it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I I think this is entirely a good thing. I think it's really possible to be cynical. And, you know, to kind of dismiss it as a symbolic gesture. But I think symbolic gestures are really, really important. I I think that ties into some of the other things we're going to talk about today. Um, Symbolic gestures are one of the ways that we hope to change the world and learn from our mistakes and move forward. Not everybody appreciates that. And there's a really, I I find, really interesting um, piece by the current editor of uh, the New York Times obituaries that I saw as just really kind of defensive, um, you know, kind of making up these um, excuses of, well, we can't, you know, write an obit for everybody and it's very, very exclusive and this number of people die every day and we <laughs> only do three and maybe it's because women uh, weren't, didn't have the, the ability to attain these, these, these positions of power before. But all of it seems to me like a very kind of uh, begrudging defense after the fact. Well, Carolyn, it sort of gives new meaning to the phrase "time's up," because uh, when your time's up, <laughs> will the New York Times even know that your time's up? Will they even acknowledge that? I don't. What was your reaction? How long to were all you this? sitting on that one? <laughs> I, I, I can actually promise. I actually swear to God, it just came to me. I have, wow. I'm not that well prepared for the show. I promise you. <laughs> Wait, what was the question? <laughs> I'm just letting you say whatever you want to say. I don't know. I I think that this is. I I, I think it's a good thing. I'm. You know, I'm just one of those people who's always cautiously optimistic about stuff. I I, I feel like in some ways an an obit – to get recognition in an obituary is sort of a big bummer. Anyway, like, right? Not for you. Well, yeah, not for the person I'd be who's bummed because you want that about. recognition when you're out there doing these oh, things. Okay. So, oh. you know, I, I'm hoping that it goes further than this. That maybe it's more that we continue to give recognition to women who are currently doing things and uh, not just searching out some really good old obituaries. So that's like where I'm hoping this also pushes that that they are looking for more live women who are actively doing cool things now. I mean, I think these days they do a pretty good job of that. But, sure. But I, I think your point's a good one, which I thought a little bit about this. Okay, so my father had a New York Times obituary. My father, who was a white male, um, had a New York Times obituary. Now, why did he have a New York Times obituary? Well, I sent some, you know, information uh, about his death to the New York Times and I said, you know, look in your files, see if you think this is worth one of your obits. Well, they looked in their files and they found a bunch of stuff about my father. So to your point, and so they did an obit, you know, so... 
to Carolyn's point, that's that's the way this reinforces itself. How do you know somebody uh, who has died is important enough to warrant a New York Times obit? Well, I mean, they don't do it that way every single time. And they really, you know, do these marvelous obits about people who have been completely undocumented, like the inventor of stovetop stuffing or something, you know, and like I just I, I always just, you know, scarf down these obits like they actually were stovetop stuffing. I love those things. And apparently but you love stovetop stuffing. I haven't had any in a while, <laughs> but uh, it seems sentimentally like a good idea. But, <laughs> but you know, but Carolyn's point's a good one. If you create a record that doesn't have a lot of women in it, then when you look up the record, you're not going to find anybody. But I think that's the problem with this gentleman's response, too, is that his defense is part of the problem. He's not recognizing that because women in general are not recognized throughout their lives, they, they're are barriers put up by our systems to attain these certain positions that would afford them a New York Times obituary, well, then they don't get one. So it, it's sort of he, he's using the problem as his defense and the defense is his problem. And so I, I felt like that article and that rebuttal, if you will, was sort of unnecessary. Right. It was a bad idea to write that. Yeah. And that when, when, when Bill sent it around, I thought, oh, my God, don't even don't write this. Why are you doing this? But on the other hand, Bill, there is something thrilling about the project, too. I mean, reading the obituaries uh, of some of the people, I mean, you know a lot about, but some of these people you don't. And that, that is something the New York Times typically does really well, maybe not as inclusively as yeah. would have been desirable. But now that they're doing it, I, I don't know. I would just, once again, I'm just... Eating up these stories like 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 crave cereal, I guess is the um, <laughs> or thin mints. That's an inside joke. <laughs> no, I I agree. I I think it's fantastic, and you know I'm I'm begrudging in my praise for the New York Times. Sometimes you know I I do think it's a important institution, and that's why this is important. But they do like all institutions have their problems. But I, I think this is excellent. And I love the way the people behind it um, are saying they're expanding this. They're starting with women, uh, but they're they're moving out into other groups that have been, quote, overlooked. And, you know, that's, that's an understatement. Um, but I also take Carolyn's point, which I think is excellent. Like, let's not just do this for dead people. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really easy to say nice things about dead people. I mean, I always think about Muhammad Ali, who, you know, is revered, you know, now that he's no longer with us, but was reviled when he was and when he was in his prime. Um, but it, but I do think it's an excellent step, and I think it's really necessary, and I think it's really interesting that some of the old guard at the Times feel a little uncomfortable about it. That, to me, that's an indication of how good of a step it is. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, obituaries are always kind of a battlefield, too. In fact, when uh, you sent us the article with, by William McDonald, I got interested in, you know, I will, first of all, wanted to know if anybody else was kind of covering the backstairs mm -hmm. part of this, and I couldn't really find anything. But I found the last time that William McDonald was kind of heavily in the news, he had, it was because the New York Times had uh, written an obit about the death of the leader of the Mormon church, the Church of Latter-day Saints. And they kind of led with the fact that he was a revered leader within the church, but had resisted the ordination of women as priests and, and had, you know, resisted uh, equality for, for for gay Mormons. And that was like all in the lead. And the Mormon church had a huge freak out about this and really attacked the times in, in multiple ways. And he had to sort of, you know, lay out his argument. Because, I mean, that's the other thing about obits that always gets gets said over and over again, which is there are news stories about mm -hmm. you that you're, and your dad. And it, they're not eulogies. So, I mean, even if you get an obit when you're dead, there's no real guarantee that it's going to say everything that you want said. 
I don't know why I'm looking at you as I say that. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I have to look at somebody. <laughs> yeah, no, direct to some. Well, that, I guess um, with – I was fascinated reading these. I certainly mm-hmm. was, and I will continue. I mean, I'm not a – an act of like I don't subscribe to the time. So like in order for me to kind of discover something there, I see it posted or, you know, hear about something and seek it out. And this is something that I would seek out that they're doing. Um and but I, I think that they I really do want to see where they go with it before mm-hmm. I like start championing this as, yay, look what they're doing for women. Right. I, and I do think that some of this is part of a larger evolution. Like, I don't yes. know, three or four years ago, I didn't know who Ada Lovelace was. I know I've known quite a bit about Ada Lovelace in recent years and just seen her depicted in uh, – she was just depicted in that Victoria series. And I mean, she's a much more familiar kind of person. And of course, Henrietta Lacks, her story was buried until that book was done. So maybe some of this is just sort of part of the evolution of us learning to tell more kinds of stories, including – um, death stories. Anyway, uh, somehow or other, I will make a transition from there to the mm-hmm. uh, story, the other thing that's kind of linked in this thing, uh, in this first segment, and that is the news. And it just trickled out this morning that the Obamas are in, I think it, the New York Times is now calling it advanced negotiations. Uh, I don't know what exactly that means, but it's, I guess, more than just trivial negotiations. With Netflix, they are going to be content creators of some kind. Uh, they are interested in developing content that will be positive and inspirational. Um, there are a couple of ideas about what these shows might be that have been floated around. I don't know how serious they were. Um, I was immediately disappointed, Tracy with Fastenberg, because I know that President Obama is like heavily addicted to Game of Thrones and would you know get the screeners ahead of time and stuff. I thought. <laughs> You know, he's going to have some kind of sword and dragon series with him in it. I can't wait. But apparently, I would watch that. I wonder yeah, I would who watch the dragon would be. Yeah, he's not hmm. going to do like Black Panther two or anything like that. He's going to do stuff that sort of fits much more with what we uh, expect from him. But I don't know. How did you react to this idea? I have sort of mixed reactions. Um, I mean, it'd be nice to see them more in the eye again. Uh, I think people feel nostalgic for just a couple years ago. You know, you have all kinds of folks that post about, you know, they'll post a Trump story and be like, I miss the Obamas. Um, And so I think that it's a good sort of panacea for some of that. But um, I think that it it can also be harmful in sort of siloing us a little bit um, more into what we want to hear and what we want to believe. Um, but it's also hopeful. Um, I think we hear so much terrible stuff in the news and unbelievable things coming out of the White House that we need to hang on to something for those of us who are but that's not like- Trump fans. You know, we need to hang on to something else and something different in order to sort of hope that things get better. TV production right now is just heavily rooted in this nostalgia thing. Like we have the Full House reboot. Oh. Roseanne is coming back. You know, <laughs> you just have all there. There is just so much uh, will and grace. Like everything mm. is mm-hmm. back. And I feel like bringing the Obamas to TV is kind of the same thing. It's like we're it's that same kind of uh, button they're trying to push with us where it's like, look, remember when everything was OK? Come tune in. <laughs> I need that sometimes. Okay I need that sometimes. It was only bro. a year ago. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they also have a comedy series called That's So W, which they're uh, working on as well. So uh, that was a joke. It didn't land apparently. Oh. <laughs> um, I got okay. scared. I was like, really? Really? I know that Jenna Bush girl is on uh, some yeah. sort of daytime yeah, talk right. show. That's, that's, the only, the, that's the only problem with jokes these days is they might be true. <laughs> so, Bill, you and I, I, we talk about this. We both teach about this too, that, that increasingly 
the division between culture and politics is is an illusion, really. You know, the culture is politics uh, and vice versa. So, uh, and obviously we have a, a president now who comes from reality television, which is maybe the less admirable part of, of culture. But I, I don't know, as a guy who teaches this all the time, what's your reaction? Uh, yeah, I think that it was always an illusion that there was somehow some division between culture and politics. I mean, that's just, that's just such a ridiculous notion um, that, you know, culture is not thoroughly political always and always has been. Um, I have to say, when I first saw, you know, this thing about um, this, the, the goal of this being kind of inspirational programming, I, I, I blanched a little bit. And I said to you all in email that I started thinking about, you know, the Hallmark Channel or Touched by an Angel or something like that. And, you know, that that I, I wouldn't have any interest in whatsoever. But then you did something interesting, Colin. You also sent us um, a story about uh, what they're trying to do in India with like this this move to really focus on positive news. And that started, you know, making me making me think about this in, in a different way that, you know, we are, you know, you know, Trump was elected because of his um, relentless telling everyone how horrible everything was. You know, that mm -hmm. phrase, American carnage, and really just basically scaring everybody to death. And then, you know, I'm the only one who can fix it. And, you know, that 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 constant dwelling on, you know, how terrible everything is and, you know, you need to be afraid and things are falling apart around you. That's a, I think that's a really powerful explanation of what's going on in our society right now. And maybe something that counters that um, could be a really positive thing in, in, in getting us to realize that, you know, there are solutions to problems that don't involve these really draconian kind of measures. Right. So, yeah, in, Italy, in, in India, they have tried this thing called the Better India. It seems actually to be – to have some traction. See, uh, it seems to be catching on, on a little bit. But it goes back, Tracy, to the point that you're making too. Like I, I had the same thought as Bill that, you know and, – and in India, what they thought was we have too much negativity and divisiveness in our media. What if we created content that was sort of about the opposite thing? Um, and, and and I had the same thought about the campaign that, you know, that the message of the campaign so much was you live in a hellhole right now. And I mean, in talking to the African-American community, as you recall, he'd say, what do the blacks have to lose? Yeah. You know, a lot. Uh, you know, yeah. I mean, but his message to everybody, yeah, was American carnage. You live in a terrible place right now. This country isn't what it used to be. Um, and th there is a need for it. But I think you're asking a really good question, which is who's going to watch this programming? What kind of swayable person is going to seek this out? on Netflix and we probably don't really know the answer but uh, it's a good one good question but I also think that people want to hear that yes we can again you know mm -hmm. rather than American carnage and I think people do need to hear that and yes it'll probably be the folks who already feel yeah. that way who watch it I can't see a whole lot of Fox and Breitbart fans tuning in unless you know they want to be able to somehow eviscerate it in whatever way they will but I think that for some of us, we may want that. We might need that in certain ways because turning on CNN and hearing about adult entertainers taking out the White House is, is not exactly <laughs> what we were hoping to see. And we want maybe something a little more substantive than happy cat videos, which I have nothing against, but seems to be the, you know. I don't know. <laughs> if you have like Obama and Michelle presenting happy cat videos, I think. <laughs> uh, I think you got the best of both worlds. Though. Yeah, right? <laughs> well, you know, I mean – 
I want to go back to this whole issue. It's, it was interesting, Carolyn, that you were sort of naming other kinds of, you know, reunion shows and things from the past coming back. And Jonathan is pointing out that they brought back Letterman uh, and had Obama on it one day at a time. Queer Eye uh, is yep. back in a new form. I want to do a nose about that at some point, uh, too. I will watch that. You will watch that. <laughs> we'll actually have, give you something to watch that will make you happy. The first uh, time hopefully. ever. First time ever. I think there's been one. Yeah. I think I liked one show but, once. But it, it is... I, you know, I, I know I say this a lot on the show, and I, I in my class that, that I'm teaching right now, we have a motto, and the motto is every day something has to happen, because in fact, here in the Trump era, um, I mean that's sort of the weekly motto of reality television, right? It's like something has to happen. So at minimum, there has to be like wine throwing or something. Now I really am looking at you because I'm. <laughs> I have never thrown my wine. No, no, but I mean, on like, camera. you know, you watch, you watch enough of this stuff to know that that there's sort yeah. of a, there's a way in which uh, the rhythms of our lives in the Trump administrations, of our political lives in the Trump administrations, uh, are very much keyed to what happens on reality television, which is where he comes from. Like, stuff has to happen all the time. There has to be a story told all the time. He's very intent on making that happen, and I, I sort of wonder whether Obama content is if it's too high minded. That actually could be a problem, too. Yeah. I mean, living in the Trump era is like waking up every day and looking at your cell phone to see what fresh hell has happened in the like eight peaceful hours you managed to get. And I, I think maybe maybe it could be that Obama, that having Obama network <laughs> would just be very pacifying and and not. I, but I think I think Michelle and 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 Barack, what what they managed to to be, especially as we're seeing them now back to being civilians, is they are charming and they are fun. Uh, like a couple of weeks ago, this picture, these pictures emerged of them like in a photo booth, just being so precious. Like it was just these these kind of goals that you have in your mind of being a human that has a relationship with another human like that, and it just. So I think that people. There is this kind of nostalgia of remembering like, oh, we once had this at our helm. And I think that people would watch what they do because because they are they are fun and they are smart. And I think that they do have a lot to offer. I mean, Michelle Obama, every time she's on Ellen, I mean, that it's just it's great. So, I mean, I think that they will they aren't going to be afraid, I think, to incorporate some lowbrow humor and that sense of fun that they have and that they tend to embody. Michelle had a dance party with a two-year-old who loved her oh portrait. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean that yeah. I mean that's sort of it that's not particularly highbrow, but it is sort of just that finding joy in simple things and doing like, something like Michelle silly. going through CVS with Ellen. Like right. I remember seeing that video and just you know, I, I think that if there's things if there are moments like that that kind of lace into it. It will... I think you're being kind of unfair because Melania has hired people to do a lot of those things, dance with children, (laughs) go to CVS. No, okay. So, but I just committed the exact sin that I was, Bill, I was going to bring up with you, which is, so when uh, Obama was on with Letterman in the debut episode of Letterman's Netflix interview series, it's something that he said. He he absolutely knows the problem that Tracy identified. He said, look, if you watch MSNBC and I watch Fox News, we live in completely (laughs) different realities. We have, like, all the nostalgia that we're all talking about here does not exist for a huge part of the country. Their idea was that this was an ineffectual administration that couldn't get anything done. And I mean, it's a whole completely different narrative. And I don't, I mean, if you don't puncture those silos, I don't know how much you really do accomplish. Well, 
I think those people do have nostalgia, but it's just nostalgia that goes back right. a lot further. Right. You know, it's nostalgia yeah. to yeah. you know when you know everybody knew their place, um, so to speak. But <laughs> you know, I I agree, and and I, I think bridging those divides is increasingly difficult. It is we we are truly a polarized society. I mean, there's no question about that. I don't know if this is even intended to do that. I think it's significant that it's Netflix. Mm-hmm. And I think the you know, I don't I don't have the statistics in front of me, but I think the Venn diagram between Netflix viewers and Fox viewers is 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 probably a pretty small sliver. It's hard um, to do because Netflix is so proprietary with their viewership yeah. information. It would it would be, you know, but I I think that data would be interesting and and you know, I do think there by going through Netflix, there is a particular group of people that they're trying to appeal to and it does give them the license to be a little bit more, you know, as you say, high-minded um, because of, of, of who they're trying to reach. And I, and I think Tracy made a, made, a, made a great point in our email exchanges that, yes, you know, that, that, that isn't really bridging the divide. But on the other hand, it's really empowering for people who really need to be empowered right now, uh, the people who are feeling like, you know, what just happened and we're on the defensive and we have to fight back and we've, we, you know, we have to get, you know, some sort of sense of justice back into our society. But Tracy said, you know, you have to have something to fight for, not just to fight against. And maybe, you know, this is an attempt to try to give people something to fight for. Of course, coming soon, Netflix for conservatives, Death Wish (laughs) movies on demand. All right, we have to uh, take a break. We're going to come back, talk about seven seconds. And we are in back, uh, indeed back with the nose. Uh, joining us are uh, actress, comedian, dancer Carolyn Payne, Tracy Wu Fastenberg from Covenant Preparatory School, Bill Usman, uh, director of media literacy and digital uh, culture graduate program at Sacred Heart University. Uh, we are going to talk right now about a Netflix uh, original series called Seven Seconds. Um, uh, we'll give you a little clip from the p- pilot. I should have uh, looked at the transcript of this uh, um, clip first so I could set it up. But you're going to hear two uh, parents, um, Isaiah and Latrice Butler. Uh, they are talking to an assistant district attorney uh, and to uh, a detective uh, who are basically laying out what will become the facts of this series. What happened to my son? All they said is he was in a car accident. Yeah, no one's talk to us. The police haven't said anything. There will be a bail hearing tomorrow morning before the arraignment at the That's county courthouse. That's not what they asked. We need to know exactly how this happened. Your son was in a hit and run this morning at Liberty State Park. This morning? They didn't call us until a few hours ago. Oh, That's when they found him earlier tonight. Two people found him. Their dog, actually. We have the man in custody who we believe did this. It's a nice bike your son's got. Five Kings rides him, too. It's serious, your BMX goes for some serious bank. What are you implying? That Brennan's with a gang? Really, you're gonna do this right now? If you wanna step back wherever you are and let me talk to the family? I am family, and I don't appreciate you coming up in here and accusing my nephew. Let me handle this. We bought the bike. Brennan's 16th birthday is coming up soon. Oh. What's gonna happen to the man who did this? But I'll be charging Mr. Dorsey with leaving the scene of a motor vehicle accident resulting in serious bodily injury. And I'll suggest the maximum sentence for this type of felony. Which is what exactly? Three to five years. 
what we already know, it is the very first thing that we know, so I'm not spoiling anything for you, uh, is we already know uh, who hit uh, the young man, who hit Brenton Butler. Uh, it's a cop, a young cop. His name is Jablonski. Uh, he didn't mean to do it, um, but he's, um, he's new to the force, new to the vice squad that he's on, the other three members of the vice squad, uh, right at the beginning of the series. Once again, I'm not spoiling anything, kind of take over at the crime scene, send him on his way and cover the whole thing up, A, to keep him out of trouble, but B, because, uh, and I think it is pretty strongly hinted at, that in the current environment, in the environment of Black Lives Matter, uh, they don't want any kind of inquest into a white cop hitting uh, a black bicyclist, a 15-year-old black bicyclist. Um, there are other secrets, it turns out, that they would like to cover up. And it turns out a lot of people in this series, good people and bad people, uh, have, seri have secrets that they have been keeping. You might also have heard the voice of Regina King, probably the only really famous performer who's in this series, although the second episode was directed by Jonathan Demme, probably the last directing credit uh, of Jonathan Demme's life and career. So um, where should we begin? Carolyn, should we begin with you? You got up at five in the morning to, to work on finishing this series. That was That is nose dedication. Yeah. Uh, well, here's... What happened was these two <laughs> went ahead and spent their whole snow day binging this show. Shh, I was hard at work. Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. So the, anyway, I then felt via email that I had fallen behind. And uh, since I did not spend my snow day binging it and then had lots of stuff going on yesterday, I panicked and uh, attempted to watch it last night, but it was a little too heavy for late night, so I got, got up at five. So, right. so I, it, it is heavy, we should say that, and we is. are going to work hard not to uh, spoil things for you. I will you. try not but to. I will tell you, it is the, I was... It is the longest Law & Order episode <laughs> that I've ever seen. Uh, I was explaining to Bill that this is like if you happen to fall asleep on the couch watching Law & Order and you wake up and it's like a different episode, but in your mind you've combined them into one episode. That's what watching this show is. Uh, and it's one of those shows that, like, yes, it's bingeable, but only because you're waiting for something that that's something to happen. You're waiting for these, like, big moments. Um which I think, like, in the last episode, you get some, you finally get some of that. I should say that I'm the person who suggested this series, and I'm the only one who hasn't finished it, because my excuse is I lost my cable uh, in the snowstorm, but, uh, but, uh, but I'm getting there. I mean, Tracy, one difference between this and Law and & Order is, in Law & Order, there is pretty, a pretty consistent notion of honorable people who are seeking an honorable result. You know, I mean, Sam, from Sam Waterston to all the cops and stuff, they're, you know, they're, they're trying to make the right thing happen. Uh, they're dealing with a, a flawed human race. Um, but that is not the case here. The, I mean, the number of people that you can have put any faith in in any part of this story and have that faith be constantly validated is a very small number. Yeah, I would say that uh, my husband walked in on me, I think it was a couple episodes in, and I'm like, I don't like a single character in this series. I mean, you get, you get to like them, but it's also because they're very, some of them are very human. They're nuanced with good and bad and flaws and all of that. But some of them are, are sort of and this is my problem with the series is that some of the characters are so uh, stereotypical, sort of uh, exactly what you expect um, from like the sort of thuggish cop who, you know, is is dirty and doesn't really have a conscience and except for like maybe 30 seconds here and 10 seconds there. Um, and, and, you know, the, the DA with a drinking problem who's overworked and has a, you know, tragic past uh, with another case, that type of thing. Um, but I do think that it was in certain ways a little more real because none of us are purely good or purely bad. 
Um, so for those sort of main characters that were very flawed but trying to do the right thing but never convinced that they were actually doing it, I thought that was a little more realistic. Well, I think it's a credit to the acting, too. I think the actors in this show, so many, it's so well cast because so many of them have such fascinating faces to mm-hmm. watch. Um, the 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 cop, the dirty cop, De- D'Angelo. D'Angelo. I want to say DiGiorno, but that's a pizza. <laughs> that's a pizza. I've been up since five. <laughs> D'Angelo, I, I thought he was great. Uh, the actor who plays Fish. Um, even, uh, even, even the actor who plays, um, he, the, the one who we know killed Jablowski, Jablowski. I, even, even he's fascinating. They're just fascinating to watch. And I think they do a really nice job playing these flawed characters Mm -hmm. that you aren't supposed to like. Bill, I want to do some media literacy here uh, with this, uh, series. I think there's some, it's got some interesting things that it's trying to talk about, including people who really are marginalized. I mean, there are a lot of people, uh, of, of both the white and African American races who are working double shifts to make ends meet, who are, uh, one character goes back on the corner just because he's out of the service and he can't find any kind of gainful employment. There's a lot of stuff in here. Uh, a, a lot of the sort of subtext of this series is these are all kinds of people who are having a hard time in America. Yeah, absolutely. Um, at one point, you know, I wrote down, you know, I was making little notes. Every single person is damaged. Mm-hmm. They are all just damaged. But one of the things I liked about it is that so often um, television and Hollywood represent damaged people as just being just just you know just kind of uh, bad people you know just people who are damaged th- through to their own faults and their own negligence and and I felt like this program worked really hard not to do that these people are grinded down by systems uh, by systems that just don't care about them they don't care about the poor or the working class or people of color and that that's a real source of um, all of the troubles that they're experiencing in their lives. And I felt like it, it, it did a better job of kind of, um, obviously you have to tell these stories through humans, but in, in kind of turning the attention on to institutions, um, you know, the criminal justice system first and foremost amongst that. I would agree. And, you know, Tracy, I thought another theme that they explore in a very interesting way is, uh, first of all, I mean, there are a lot of people who are damaged by fathers in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, fathers uh, who were so intent. I mean, no, once again, not evil fathers. Fathers who were so intent. This is true uh, of two fathers in this series in particular in, in making sure that their offspring somehow or other could climb the rungs of the system, would not be ground down by the system, could have the, um, the kind of resilience and strength strength that it would take uh, to fight through some of the kinds of problems that, that, that Bill is describing, that they really damaged their offspring in the process. And there's sort of that notion of sort of family hurting you in a way that it doesn't mean to, and also this notion of seeking family wherever that you can find it, whether it's in a gang that you've been in in the past that you rejoin, or the notion that this incredibly corrupt vice squad is your family, which we're told again and again, right? Right. And I think that it was a nice theme to have because I think that as much as that, you know, there's so many things that do grind us down. It can be sort of internal where it's familial and, um, you know, your job, your whatever, the people that you surround yourself with. And it is a little more external, like the systems that are designed to hold, uphold 
certain kinds of folks and sort of mar- continue to marginalize other kinds of folks. I happened to be writing a grant, actually, for the school that I work for mm-hmm. while I was watching this. And our students are boys of color who come from underserved communities. And it was sort of, you know, not all of them come from damaged homes or low income or, you know, what you traditional traditionally think of as underserved but some of them do. And so it was really interesting to think in terms of the grant I was writing and what I was watching. Um, and, and it just, it all sort of comes together in this hot mess, really. Carolyn, if somebody asked you whether to watch this, would you recommend it or not? <sighs> um, <laughs> so I didn't hate it. Uh, I, I, I felt like it was a little bit long. Like it was very, it, they could have edited like half of this out and it would have been, just as good, if not yeah. better. Um, I think, like I said, I think the acting was really, really great. And I think it has important things to discuss, but a lot of that got lost in that there is so many, there are just so many issues and so many layers that sometimes you, I felt like the big issue at hand with this, this the race struggles could have, I think that they could have like redirected everything and just, I, I don't know. I felt like there was just so many because you had, when, when it, oh, I don't want to give away stuff. I don't, I was, yeah, you should not. Yeah. Should not. There right, is but, one, I think, unexpected but really important revelation, although Tracy expected it, but I, I yeah. didn't, um, which we won't tell you about. But, but I think is, it, 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 I think it, it's important to what they're trying and it to is, do. And it is yeah. important, but I felt yeah. like it was just so long and there were so many paths that long. they were taking mm-hmm. yeah. that sometimes things got lost. Oh, and, of course, The Wire is really long. The Wire, which many of us salute as the greatest piece of yeah. television ever created, is, is oh, <laughs> was five, five seasons. And Bill, I, I sort of start with The Wire and everything kind of descends from there. Mm-hmm. And this aspires to many of the qualities mm-hmm. of, of The Wire. Uh, I think it's very hard to get that yeah. particular lightning in a bottle again. I, I, I thought the night of the John Turturro mm-hmm. uh, thing that was mm-hmm. done on HBO was was close. Having somebody like Richard Price involved as a writer is always helpful. But the, I thought this came for you know it, it aspires to that level of quality. I don't think it quite reaches it, but it doesn't feel by that much either. I agree. I, I it's not the wire. You know, let's let's be clear about this. It, it's it's not the artistic achievement. Um, that the wire was, and it does have those flaws, you know, that both Tracy and, and and Carolyn have have pointed out. But I think if it falls short as an artistic achievement, what it really does well with is what we were talking about in the first segment, which is bringing politics and culture together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it does that quite well. Um, and I think it can be summed up in this legal phrase that appears in the program and. A lot of well, the reviewers and my wife both keyed in on, which is depraved indifference. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a program about the indi- the depraved indifferent indifference that marginalized people are are treated with um, in this country. Um, and so, you know, in in terms of casting a light on that, I would say pretty successful. Yeah, I, I do think there are some there's some bad writing in this series and then there's there some is. fabulous yes. writing yes. in this series. It's yeah, it's spotty. It just, yeah. It, I, maybe it was eight spotty episodes like the men's facial hair. <laughs> <laughs> I also hey I also think one of the things that it got very right in sort of um, exploring this depraved indifference is that it didn't give you little tiny happy endings everywhere. You know, everybody yeah. had realistic endings, things that would mm-hmm. happen today. And I mean on a, you know, on the big ending level and also 
each character's sort of where they wound up and what they wound up doing. Not Sorry, this is a mini-spoiler. Not everybody winds up happy here. No, Very few of them do. But it is what would probably happen in this situation. I but, actually appreciated that most about right, this. When same. I did get to the end, I, I there was a point where I was getting nervous because a part of me wanted some happy endings here, but I knew that in order to really like this show and appreciate it for what it's done, I, I didn't I didn't want that. The no, show we're, talk, we're, show, we're talking about is Seven Seconds. Uh, somebody just complained on Twitter. We hadn't said the title in a while. It's Seven <laughs> Seconds. You can uh, see it on Netflix. We should probably break so that we'll have time for recommendations. I do want to quickly mention just one, I thought, stellar piece of writing. There's a, a, a confrontation between one of the cops and his father. His father is a kind of near-do-well, drunk, and other failure of some kind. Uh, and, and they kind of shout it out in a way that is perhaps maybe familiar from other scenes like that, that you've seen. Uh, with the younger man saying he just never wants to see his father again, stay away from me and my family. And his father says, uh, it looks at him with a kind of odd bit of tenderness and longing and says, just keep on living. And then there's a little pause and he says, you'll see. Uh, oh, and and I, that one just tore my heart out. Talk about being ground down. That is the father's anticipation is that we were – the longer you live, the more that life does grind you into the worst possible kind of pulverized stuff. All right. We've got to take a quick break. We'll come back. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants with help from me, Kyone Wolf, and Betsy Kaplan. The part of Bill Curry was played by Regina King. On Monday, revisit our conversation about the history of women in pants. And now, back to Colin. It's time to make some endorsements or recommendations. Uh, we'll start over here with Tracy Wu Fastenberg. What have you got for us? So I have two recommendations. First is a piece um, done by Vice's sort of women's section uh, called Broadly. Um, and the title of it is sort of terrible. It's 100 Easy Ways to Make Women's Lives More Bearable. Um, and, and it sounds like, you know, bring her flowers, you know, clean up the dishes. <laughs> but the list is actually sort of great And when you're talking about inclusive feminism. Um, with yesterday being um, International Women's Day, they came out with something that was a little more substantive than your usual sort of like hug a woman or whatever type of thing. It talks about... Um, you know, how to help marginalized women, how to recognize trans women. And um, there's just it's a nice long list that if you're raising children, if you are a human that you should probably read. Um, it's affirming as a woman. And I think for those who do not identify as women, it's, it's a great read also. Um, and it is a listicle, but it's a good one. Um, the other thing that I want to endorse is Johnny's Jog for Charity, which is coming up on March 25th. Um, starts at Blueback. It's a sun Saturday morning or Sunday morning um, at 10:30. It is in honor of a young man who passed away from a rare syndrome, but it benefits a few local charities for um, children, um, and that includes the school that I work at, Covenant Prep, where we work with um, middle school boys from underserved communities around Hartford. Um, and so it is a 5K. Some people run it. Some people walk it. It's sort of St. Patrick's Day themed, so you can throw on your green and sort of stumble around, and nobody will think anything of it. All right. Bill Usman, what have you got for us? A um, couple uh, events coming up uh, at uh, Sacred Heart University that I'm involved with. On March 21st at 6.30 p.m., we're going to have a conversation on sports and race. 
with Doug Glanville, who was a major league baseball player, um, ESPN commentator, and an author. He's actually a Hartford resident now. Been on the show many times. Oh, I didn't know that. That's great. And um, Dave Zirin, uh, who is the sports editor for The Nation. Been on um, the show many times. Prolific author writing on sports and politics, right, you know, that intersection of politics and culture. And I'm fortunate enough to be able to be hosting the conversation. Between You've also them. been on the show many times. <laughs> <laughs> There's a through line. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then um, on um, um, March uh, 27th, um, we're going to be doing a screening of the documentary film about James Baldwin, who has not been on the show many times, uh, called I Am Not Your Negro. We're going to do a screening and a discussion of it. Um, Both those events are free and open to the public, so come on down March 21st and March 27th, uh, Sacred Heart University. All right. And Carolyn Payne, what have you got for us? All right. So uh, kind of what we were talking about with the Times article and in honor of uh, National Women's Day, uh, International Women's Day, There is a book uh, that is called In Praise of Difficult Women, and it's just a really fun read. Uh, Each chapter focuses on a woman from, like, Carrie Fisher to Amelia Earhart, um, and it kind of just looks at what made them them stand out and why they, you know, sort of just went against uh, their times, and they were, like, gloriously imperfect in their own ways. So it's just a really – it's a fun – it's a fun book, and – is a, a nice a nice look at the lives of a lot of great women. And uh, also um, something I did love on Netflix recently was the show Everything Sucks. Um, it is, I am a uh, child of the 90s, so I found it highly relatable. Uh, the soundtrack is spectacular. I have now just downloaded all these songs I had forgotten about um, that just were such an anchor to my youth. And the, this show uses that soundtrack as like a great character in itself. Um, and the characters in this show are really, uh, interesting and well thought out. And it's a kind of, it's a great look at that nineties period. What's it called again? Everything sucks. All right. So, um, if I were to tell you, I'm, I'm uh, sort of on a limb making this a recommendation. I, I, I'm going to have to sort of cushion that somehow. But if I were to tell you that there were a mo- was a movie that starred Anna Paquin, also featured uh, Mark Ruffalo, uh, Matthew Broderick, Matt Damon, Allison Janney, Kieran Culkin, maybe not at the same level, uh, John Gallagher. Um, I could go on. Uh, you might think, was this some kind of X-Men Avengers movie that I missed? No. It's a movie called Margaret. Uh, it has a very strange oh, yeah. history. Yeah, Kenneth Lonergan, who's also yeah. in it, um, uh, directed it in 2011 and then couldn't get it released the way that he wanted it released and it stalled his career. Uh, it's He basically went from there to finally doing Manchester by the Sea uh, because he couldn't get this thing released the way he wanted it. Uh, it's now available in its three-hour long <laughs> Kenneth Lonergan form. I, I'm I, I watched this partly because my cable was out and I had it on Blu-ray, uh, and so I could actually um, do something anyway. It has some similarities to Seven Seconds. There are some issues that come up that are not that different some, from some of the issues that come up on Seven Seconds. The other thing that it has is J. Smith Cameron, who isn't as famous as all the other people I just named. She's the wife of Kenneth Lonergan. She's an amazing actress. I fell in love with her as the mother uh, on uh, Rectify. Uh, and uh, she is the mother of Anna Paquin in this, and she is uh, fabulous. And and so I, you have to be you have to be really interested in movies. You have to be willing to put up with I- almost innumerable. 
uh, panoramic shots of the New York skyline, uh, the reverse of which we get a lot in seven seconds, which is set in Jersey City. So you're sort of always looking at New York City's and the Statue of Liberty's behind, basically. <laughs> uh, but uh, Lonergan is very sweeping in his use of landscape. Uh, I would say it probably you know, he wrecked his life to get the unedited version out. Probably a slightly edited version would have been better. This does feel uh, a little plotting at times. But it's also kind of a masterpiece of a vision, a vision that weaves together uh, everything from uh, violent death uh, to to opera to a young teenager making uh, really bad uh, sexual choices. It's sort of as if Lady Bird were written by Richard Price, uh, you know, or if Lady Bird somehow or there was like one season of the wire or something. <laughs> you get something a little bit like this movie. So I, I really, I just don't get mad at me if you watch it. You have to watch the three-hour version, apparently. David Edelstein insists that that is the case. Uh, and it's called Margaret, just that name. There's no character in it named Margaret. That's a reference to a Jared uh, Manley Hopkins poem, I believe. Uh, and uh, don't send me angry emails if you watch it and you hate it, because I would predict that a certain percentage of the audience would feel exactly that way. And Fifty percent of the household in which I live had thought this was a really, really long movie. Anyway, uh, give it a try if I've intrigued you at all. Meanwhile, thanks very much to Tracy Wu Fastenberg and Bill Usman and Carolyn Payne. Uh, we will have a couple of our favorite shows on for you next week on Monday and Tuesday as Jonathan McPants and I go to a conference. And then we will be back on Wednesday where there are very exciting uh, Bill Curry and Julia Pistel annual March Madness show. Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.